Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of A Little Bit Famous with Ted Murata. Um, my guest this week is Ashley Sophia. She's an absolutely brilliant songwriter and singer, and we're going to get to the episode in just a second. I just wanted to say you can find me on Instagram at Ted Murata. You can check out my YouTube channel. Just search A Little Bit Famous with Ted Murata, and I'm posting uh, video um, excerpts from, from all of the episodes there now, so you can check them out if you want to. You can find me on Facebook at A Little Bit Famous. And also, you can support the show. There's a clickable link at the bottom of the description. If you wanted to uh, throw a tip in the jar, as it were, um, I'd be grateful. I'm also really excited to announce next week's guest. My guest for episode 11 is Steve Gorman, the drummer from the Black Crows. He wrote a book called Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows. We have a really amazing conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. We take a pretty deep dive into the Black Crow's discography, and he shares quite a bit about the band tensions that ultimately led to the breakup of, of the Black Crow's. So please stay tuned for episode 11 coming next Wednesday. So I'm not going to do the, the uh, typical A Little Bit Famous theme music this week. I'm going instead to play a clip of one of Ashley Sophia's songs called That Girl is a Rainbow. It's absolutely awesome. I, You're going to fall in love with it from the first sentence. You're going to fall in love with Ashley Sophia, and I think you're going to want to go out and buy uh, her music as soon as this episode is done. So without further ado, here it is, That Girl is a Rainbow by Ashley Sophia, and I hope you enjoy this episode. That girl is a rainbow. My boy is colorblind He takes her to the parties She walks and talks so fine And everybody sees her But he's got other things on his mind That girl is a rainbow And that boy is colorblind But one day that old rain is gonna clear And she's gonna shine her My guest today is Ashley Sophia. She's a singer, songwriter, recording artist based in Nashville, and I'm really happy to have her here and I'm looking forward to a good conversation with her. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ted. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, me too. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you today. Um, I guess I wanted to, I, I kind of like to start at the beginning. This is, you know, whenever I am have the opportunity, which is really what the show is about, to talk to a creative, you know, um, I, I, I'm always curious to know kind of what got you into it in the first place. And sometimes the first place to go, the best place to go is kind of just go to the beginning, you know, go to your childhood. And um, so when you were when you were little, I guess I would ask, do you have any siblings? I have an older brother. OK. And did you grow up in a family? Did you did you grow up in a musical family? Was that um, something that was a part of your life? Yeah, music. Music was a part of my life. Um, from the jump, um, my parents were always playing music. They constantly had a, a collection of CDs. They were cycling in and out. Um, it was a lot of folk rock, um, 
a lot of stuff from the 70s, um, a lot of James Taylor, John Denver, Crosby, Souls, and Nash, the Eagles, mm. Simon and Garfunkel. Um, my mom even had much older tastes than that. She listened to a ton of Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald, mm. Billy Holiday. And then I was very fortunate to grow up just a quarter of a mile down the road from my grandparents' apple orchard, just not too far away, walking distance. And so I'd walk up and, you know, spend time with my yaya. And she was always listening to um, the Andrew Sisters and Glenn Miller Band. And um, so there was there was a wide variety of, I would say, always older music playing in my house. Mm-hmm. That's great. And actually, this the the artists that you were listing were the artists I was listening to as a kid too. You know, um, no kidding. Oh yeah, Simon and Garfunkel and the Eagles and I. I you know. Uh, in my case, I was listening to records <laughs> a little older than you. So I was listening to, you know, my parents had a record player and I, I would, those, those were the songs, you know, Bob, Bob Dylan and some other artists like that. But, but yeah. Simon and Garfunkel was a big one. Yeah. Um, so where did you grow up? I grew up in a little town called Ticonderoga, New York. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, I did, I think I did say something, you know, that I live close to the Adirondacks to you when we were kind of initially connecting about, about doing the show. I've been there a million times, you know, um, and and uh, a, a great memory of my childhood is going to at the time it was called Storytown Village, and then it became the Great Escape. Yeah. Uh, did you go there as a kid? Yes, I did. I remember Storytown actually, and I went to the Great Escape all the time growing up. It was really fun. It was great to live not far away from you know such an awesome theme park. Yeah, totally. I know. Yeah, for people who don't live in New York and don't know, it was a it was a theme park. It was kind of a middling theme park. You know, it wasn't Disney World, but but for us who live nearby it, it was pretty awesome. It was Disney World for us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, in fact, I remember because I went there a million times before I went to actually went to Disney World and I was like, yeah. oh, OK, so this is this, this is Disney is World. <laughs> this is not the great escape. Yeah, exactly. Um, how, how long did you live in that, in that area in, in, um, in upstate New York in the, in the Adirondacks? Um, I lived in the Adirondacks until I was 18 and then I went away to college, not too far South of there. Um, in Schenectady, I went to Union College. No kidding. And yeah. And I studied, um, English and anthropology and, mm-hmm. um, then I moved back home. Um, I got sick after college. I'd moved briefly to New York City, but I was too ill. So I moved back home and I was in the Adirondacks for um, a while. And I started, that's when I started recording and releasing music and touring. Um, And then I moved to Nashville from there. Okay. Um, You said you got sick. Can I ask what happened? Yeah. So um, I ended up, I ended up with kind of a lot of complications all at once. It was like one thing went wrong and um, my body my body just sort of got weaker and weaker and weaker. And they're not exactly sure what triggered it. Um, I was diagnosed at one point with Lyme disease, um, but I ended up losing a, a tremendous amount of weight. Um, I was having a hard time eating, having a lot of allergic reactions, having a hard time breathing, a lot of asthma. And um, it just got to the point where like, 
I was sleeping, sitting up and in and out of the emergency room all the time and just not, not well at all. And I was diagnosed with chronic erosive gastritis and esophagitis. Oh man. And yeah, and I was just, I was very, um, very sick, very young. And that really, it impacted um, my art. Um, It impacted the trajectory of the rest of my life, I think. I can I can imagine it did. How, did. how old were you again when you said that this this started happening? Um, I was twenty one. You were twenty one. I mean, and- even before that, there was like a few symptoms. Like when I was, you know, in college, it was like much milder and more manageable. But when I was twenty one, it was like I hit I hit a wall and I got just so so sick. And and where where are you now as as far as all of that's concerned? I have. I've kind of, it's kind of ebbed and flowed. I've experienced years of health. Um, I got much better after that. And then I enjoyed like complete normalcy. I was like running and um, traveling and getting on planes and doing all kinds of things. More recently, it has dipped. Um, I had a few things, you know, go south in 2019, right around the time I put out my record. And um, in 2020, we got hit by a tornado. And then when we were moving from our apartment, um, my fiance and I both caught COVID. And Ugh. we both got uh, tremendously sick. It, we borderline probably both could have been in the hospital. Um, and we were both that ill. And he was perfectly healthy when it hit him. I was not. Um, so the crazy thing is in some ways it impacted him harder, shorter term. Like we went to Vanderbilt to get our heart and lungs looked at and they wanted to hospitalize him because his heart and lungs were so bad. Oh, wow. And um, he didn't want to leave me alone. Mm. <laughs> so he was like, nope, <laughs> I'm fine. And we went home and his um, we were staying in different rooms because we didn't know if we had the same thing. We didn't know if like he had the flu and I had COVID or vice versa. Mm-hmm. at that point um so we were sleeping in different rooms wow. and um it turned out that his fingernails and toenails were turning blue from lack of oxygen and um it just got really bad and for me um but yeah i stayed incredibly ill from covid um from march until september and then um i couldn't sing i couldn't play guitar really at all and then I started to sing again and just a little bit and then get stronger and stronger and now I'm playing and singing more than I have in a really long time so I'm very fortunate yeah that's fantastic that's that's great to hear um there's a lot to unpack here um uh and I I have a lot of questions um and I I, so I want to go back eventually and talk a little bit about your childhood because you said you were you you did come from a musical family and that your parents were playing music and so we'll we'll just file that away we'll come back to that in a second but something that definitely caught my attention was when you said that you when you became ill when you were 21 that it it changed so many things about your life and your the trajectory of your life and and shaped your music can you can you expand on that a little bit about what that experience, how that experience shaped you as a creative person and what you know how it did change your life? Yeah, 
I believe the things that I've been through physically, mentally, emotionally, um, the hardships that I face in illness and, and in facing chronic illness and in living with, I think those things sort of forced an isolation on me from a very young age. I think that um, I spent a lot of time alone. I spent a lot of time with books. I spent a lot of time with music and records and reading. Um, and I think, I think it was really my convalescence, my, my um, intermittent convalescence throughout my life that has led me to art. You know, because I, I think making art and especially making good art, which is always the hope, requires isolation. I think it requires quiet and introspection and sitting still and I know a lot of people co-write, but honestly, I think the greatest songs of all time have all been written um, usually by one person, usually with somebody alone in a room with mm -hmm. a very pure intention. Mm -hmm. And um, I think illness catalyzed a lot of that for me. I think it just, it sort of um, kept me locked up kept me closed in, kept me with a guitar in my hands, kept me with a book in my hands. And um, those things, you know, it, I've always said like, <laughs> you know, music, music chose me. Um, I feel like it's something I've tried to get out of a few times or I've thought of other career paths, but it was mm -hmm. like time and again, I keep getting dragged into music or, you know, a door opens at the right time or something happens, a conversation happens, a meeting happens somebody sends me an email and it's it's always felt like this strange thing that I was meant to be doing and it seems almost like haphazard that any of it happened because I was a very shy person um I was very shy growing up I was very shy in high school I in fact I thought it was so funny when you sent me a message and you said I think you said something like I love your I love your voice, I think is what you said. Yeah, um, which, which I do. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, that I'm so touched to know that. And um, frankly, I'm always surprised to hear it because I don't consider myself a vocalist at all. Interesting. I consider myself like a storyteller or um, I don't know. I just like, I can't do karaoke. Like I just don't consider myself to be a singer in any mm -hmm. way. And so whenever anyone says I have a nice voice, I'm surprised to hear that. I'm uh, flattered. <laughs> yeah. Well, you do. And, uh, and I definitely, um, you know, I, I, I will get to this at the end of the show, but we'll, we'll, you'll have an opportunity to just let everyone know where they can find you, how they can listen to you and they can, you know, they can really kind of get to know you as an artist and a singer, because I think your songs are really fantastic. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I've done this. This is this this will be episode ten of this podcast, and um, so I've spoken to a number of people of, of creative people. Um, most of them musicians, some of them um, record producers, uh, and and honestly, the themes that emerge that have emerged on this podcast 
have been very consistent and have been pretty fascinating to me because from my experience as a as a you know musician who played in a band and played drums for 40 years i had the same experiences and and you you talking about things like being shy feeling isolated these are things i hear coming up um i i've heard i've heard from guests and i experienced myself who were bullied uh, who just sort of felt like they were um, kind of anachronistic to the age they were living in. You know, there's there seems to be a lot of that sense of feeling a little bit apart from, uh, and but but also having a level of awareness about it, you know, that we seem to be very sensitive to that um, and that and how that shapes our art. Yeah. Is that, I mean, is that something from, did you have that experience from a relatively young age? Did you feel... You know, you said that there were times when you tried to get out uh, and then you got it, it pulled the music, pulled you back in um, as a kid. Did you did you think to yourself, I I want to do something creative for my life or was your path kind of more of the standard path? And then you broke away. I think I think when I was younger, music just wasn't on the agenda. Actually, music really wasn't on the agenda until it was the agenda. If that makes any sense. At it all. does. It was like. I, you know, I didn't worship pop stars. I didn't care about pop culture. I didn't <laughs> read any of the magazines. Um, I didn't keep up with celebrities. I had no, and not not that any of that's required to be a musician because honestly the greatest musicians don't, you know, they don't give a shit about any of that. They don't pay attention. But yeah. I guess what I'm saying is like, I had no, um, fascination with like popular culture or um any any interest in being involved in it i think what i pictured for myself when i was young was i i wanted to be a writer i wanted to write books um i wrote a lot of poetry growing up and then i think cir circling back to you know how i grew up in a musical family my dad my dad played guitar and he was in a cover band when i was younger and um you know, I just watched him playing guitar all the time and I watched how he was transported. Like he'd close his eyes when he was singing and I just mm. thought, man, he's he's going somewhere else. I, I want to go yeah. there. I just yeah. experienced that, like getting out of here and going somewhere else. And um, I asked him to teach me to play and he said no. He said that uh, <laughs> he just, I was in, I think I was, uh, I was 11 years old, so I was pretty young. Um, but he said, no, you don't have what it takes. Oh. And I said, oh, I said, of course I do. I, I can do anything. And he said, no, there's no way. It's, it's hard work. You, I don't think you have what it takes. I don't think that you can do it. And see, when I tell that story, it makes my dad sound like an absolute jerk. But I think the truth is that he knew me. Mm -hmm. He knew that I like to challenge and that I don't back down from one. Um, mm -hmm. That's just my personality. If someone says I can't do something, I'm going to do it. And so him, him handling it that way made me work like a dog. Um, to prove him wrong. And I played until my fingers bled. I played every single day, every night. I played until I had calluses thicker than him. And um, I am grateful to this day that he told me I wasn't going to be able to do it because I think 
I think otherwise, you know, the moment it got hard, I would have thought, well, maybe I should go do something else, something right. more, something more fun. And the truth is, for a long time, the guitar isn't fun. For a long time, oh yeah, garbage. And yeah, there is there is a music, you're making noise. Yeah, there is a steep and 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 literally painful, you know, kind of initial mountain you have to get over if you yeah. want to learn how to play the guitar and it, it you're right it comes to it comes in the form of, of fingers bleeding and thinking that your your fingers just simply won't do uh you know what you want them to do uh, my uh, my my friend who's a bass player who I'm I'm playing in a band with now he he was talking about that you know he plays bass and he was like you know the learning curve for bass is quite a bit easier than than guitar because uh, you're not you know you're not really playing chords on a bass unless that's something you choose to do but um, so, uh, so about guitar, did you just pick up your dad's guitar and start playing it? Like, um, and did you want to play guitar because your dad was playing guitar? Did you take formal lessons? Did you just teach yourself? Um, I did not take lessons. I've never taken a guitar lesson. Um, he taught me, he had a couple of guitars laying around. He taught me on, um, gosh, I'm trying to think what the first guitar was that I learned on. It might've been his old Martin, it could have been his Takamini. I don't remember like which one was the first one that I strummed around with. Um, we had a number laying around the house. But yeah, he just showed me an E minor and then I played E minor until I got sick of it and, yeah. um, you know, nailed it. And then it was a D chord and a C chord and a G chord and then all the rest of them. And I just played each one and went back and forth. And also, you know, an 11 year old girl has, um, smaller hands so mm. it was a stretch for me to learn some of the chords and it was <laughs> it was more than my hands were um had ever really moved or used some of those finger muscles right um and i just i had no interest in ever performing out for playing for anyone for songwriting um none at all it just mm -hmm. wasn't ever an aspiration of any yeah. sort. I just wanted to learn how to play guitar. Right. And um, and when did you get your first guitar? Your first, it was your guitar. Um. Well, when I went away to college, um, when I went away to college, he gave me his um, 1947 018. Um, oh, and that that became mine. Um, he was moving in, me into my dorm room and we had moved just about everything in and he stood in the doorway and he said, wait, there's one more thing. And with that and he put it on my bed and it was. Um, uh, I'm tearing up. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's pretty beautiful. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, just so symbolic because he had uh he had played it when he was in college and he'd um he'd been in the merchant marines and he sailed around the world with it and so it was this just beautiful full circle moment mm. uh this instrument that bound us through through time just through growing up together you know decades apart mm -hmm. and um it meant more to me i think than uh any gift i've ever received <laughs> that's that's amazing that that yeah. totally fills my heart right up. That's yeah. that's wonderful. <laughs> um, and did you? I mean, did you when you when you got to college and you were you had this 
beautiful guitar and you had this like really I would think a clearly profound moment with your dad and um, did you start playing around in front of people when when did you start to to do that just to show up at open mics or campus events or you know were you doing any of that kind of stuff at that point um i had it prior um i had it prior to college i i was in a girl singing group in high school and i was in um, i was a band geek i played the alto clarinet i loved being involved in music but i i liked it peripherally i wanted mm-hmm. to blend in i wanted to be in the background um in fact, my high school music teacher wanted me to take a Linda Ronstadt solo for uh, Blue Bayou, and I told him no. <laughs> I just said, I have no interest. Um, so the spotlight was something not only did I not want, I actively avoided. And then in college, um, as most people go through, I'm sure you know you went through this at 18, 19, 20. It's just a huge, like, transitory period in in your life and you're you're meeting new people and you're shedding former selves and you're finding out who you are and so i think the songs just started coming very organically because my life was changing so quickly um i just was discovering all these new things about life and the world and myself and i started songwriting Mm -hmm. and um there was a girl down the hall from me. Her name was Chelsea and she was a big, you know, music fan. And we were always talking about Led Zeppelin and Joni Mitchell and just old music. And she heard me playing and she came into my room and, you know, she listened for a while and she just said, you know, what song is that? I would love to download it. And I was just like, that's my song. I wrote that. And that feeling of, um, you you know like knowing she wanted something that i made um it just shocked me it just felt like too crazy to me that someone would ever want to have that and then um it started happening more and more that the girls on my hallway would come and listen to my songs and they'd say hey you know can you record that on your computer and send it to me i i need that song or you know, I, I want a copy of that song. And so I have some bootleg recordings from just like garage band sessions, you know, yeah. old songs back then. And it was just like these concerts in my dorm room all the time. And these girls knew every word and they actually did end up putting them on their iPods and putting them on their computers and um, just pushing me all the time and saying things like, you know, we believe in you, you're so talented, you're gifted. And um, I wasn't there to do that. I didn't go to college to be a musician. So it felt, it just felt um, (laughs) sort of like accidental the whole time. Not really um, something I was working toward, not something I was interested in, but the feeling of, of writing, the feeling that I got when I wrote a song became so powerful and so intoxicating it was like man i love this like i love this feeling i love disappearing i love sitting down with a question and strumming until i have an answer it became so addictive that i knew 
I had to get over my stage fright if I wanted to keep doing it. I knew like, you know, you're going to have to like deal with being under the bright lights. Like if, if you want to spend your life really doing this, you got to get over this. The feeling was just so addictive of, I don't know, like I, I began to feel, I guess, this feeling when I had a guitar in my hands and I was working out a song like, man, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Isn't that amazing? Yes, yes, it is. It's awesome. And the older I've gotten, the more I've realized like what a gift that is because I know not everybody is fortunate enough to find that or feel that in their lifetime. And as much of a pain pain in the ass as like, you know, music or the entertainment business can be at times. Yeah. um, Like that pure feeling of, what it's like to create something is so beautiful and so powerful that, you know, if you've got it, you've got to hang on to it with everything you've got. So I don't know, I guess I started to at the, I don't know, at the request of the girls on my hallway and friends, I started, I started to go and listen at like open mics, (laughs) just, just like to dip my toe when I was just in the audience. And then Mm -hmm. someone, put my name in to go up on stage and I didn't know and I I couldn't even do it I couldn't do it I didn't get up and then eventually I played you know for two people and then I played for four and then I played for eight and I don't know what happened I don't know if it was just like my my (laughs) prefrontal I don't know what is it your prefrontal cortex or some some lobe something in your brain like (laughs) yeah it was like I hit this age where I stopped giving a shit like I stopped caring about what people thought and I became more confident and I loved it and all of a sudden it just shifted for me it just got fun and I began to love it and I started playing bigger shows and I Mm -hmm. started you know playing in front of lots of people on campus or you know playing for events or birthday parties or traveling um and and I I just got so comfortable it became like breathing but it's it's funny thinking back now on the times that it was (laughs) it was so impossible it's like it's like I'm two different people (laughs) almost yeah. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't know what I was. I don't know what the hell I was as a kid. I, I don't know. I guess I was, I imagine my parents and my sisters would probably say I was like, I was, um, I was like a little, uh, theatrical kid, you know, I was, I was always doing impressions. And so I think from a pretty young age, the, the being in front of people think didn't, I wasn't afraid of that. I, I, you know, there was a time I dreamed of being like on Saturday night live um yeah but you know um I, you know it was just i don't know and but the weird thing is, is i don't i don't crave that part of it uh it's wonderful i love it there's you know don't get me wrong being in front of a big crowd and having a great night of music and people clamoring for an encore it's it's a wonderful 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 feeling but you know that certainly wasn't why i got into it um i got into it just for the music and the joy of it and and all that kind of stuff but it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing the way that you described and you described it beautifully that you i don't want i don't want to say overcame but that you sort of evolved beyond beyond that fear yeah you know i don't know what it was i don't know if it was an overcoming i don't know if it was just like going from a child into a woman i don't know if it was 
just getting confidence and growing up. It's so hard to pinpoint the moment that it went from, this is terrifying, I don't want to do this, to this is so second nature and I can't wait to get out there. I mean, sometimes it feels like, sometimes I felt like I'm, you know, a horse pawing at the gate, like waiting, waiting to be up on stage again and singing and sharing songs and stories and meeting people. That feeling when I was younger, um, (laughs) you know, it just was, it was not there. And I don't know, maybe it was like, maybe it was more of a situation where all of the good experiences that I started to have or that life sort of forced on me, like these things that I didn't want to do that were slowly introduced to me. Maybe it was like I, uh, I acclimated just very gradually to this life that I had no idea that I wanted. So I, I mean, I'm like, I get kind of getting goosebumps because it, it's just, it's so amazing. And I, I, I can relate the, 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 that, that thing of doing something, giving people something that's from you and having them love it, to respond to it, you know, um, feel things from it because of it. Um, it's just, it's just such a, such an unbelievable sublime kind of experience. And, you know, those of us who do it are lucky that we get to do it. You know, it's, it's a, it's a relationship between groups of people. That's really special, you know? Yeah. Um, sorry, my cat Jasper just made an appearance and, and all hell broke loose in here. (laughs) Uh, if he comes around again, I'm going to scoop him up because okay, I love he's, that name, by the way. Yes, ja- my dear boy Jasper. Um, I figured, you know, if you name something ja- someone or something Jasper, they just have to be cool. I mean, you, you can't be not cool if your name is Jasper. But I don't know. It's somehow he. Prophecy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, Jasper's shenanigans aside. Um, I, I'm I, okay. I have some questions now that we're we're at the I'm recording stage of of uh, of your life. I'm curious to know what your first recording experience was uh, were like, and I don't mean recording into GarageBand. I mean like when you were like, okay, I'm going into a studio or something that approximates a studio. I'm going to record music for an album or an EP or even a single. What was that experience for you? Was there a learning curve for you to be in studio as opposed to on stage? Um, things like that. Yeah, my first my first experience was I was recording with um, a producer in Westchester. His name is David Vislocki. He now lives in Los Angeles. And I think he's like a, I mean, he's blown up. He's done like number ones and he's gone on to do some incredible, um, incredible pop songs. But it was just like out of his house. Um, and we were recording in a tiny a tiny little spot above a pizza parlor and I remember he had like a Maine Coon cat in there that was always hanging out on my lap while we were recording and Dave um Dave was the perfect person to cut my teeth I think with in the recording experience because he was so funny he made me laugh all the time and he was always cracking jokes and doing voices. And he's just one of those fun loving people. I think that it sort of lubricates the, the experience and, and makes it so much less anxiety ridden because, you know, it can be expensive to go into a studio and the clock's ticking and you've got to get it right. And I think 
he just, you know, sometimes he would like light candles or burn incense or just, and he believed in all of the songs so much that I think, I don't know. And I, I remember like, you know, at first we did like a, a demo together and then there was this really big record producer who heard the demo on the radio and wanted me to come work with him. And he'd won like nine Grammys. And so I was working with him and his audio engineer. And that was, it was just so stressful and so much harder. I was driving to the studio every single day and they were both so busy with so many projects. And I don't want to, I don't want to say any names or who they were working with, but I mean, we're talking about like the biggest stars of all time. Like, and I, I don't mean like pop stars. I mean like the classic artists, like, and so obviously when you're recording a debut album and you're competing with time for someone at the caliber of Stevie Wonder, like you're going to take a major backseat. So I kept experiencing this feeling of like things weren't moving quick enough, things weren't happening. Like they were making me promises and then the, the story would change or what was happening with the recording experience was like, gosh, it's so hard to explain. It was just like, it was like one step forward, two steps back, almost yeah. the entire project. And it was so hard to walk away from that because, you know, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't I didn't know what was going to happen. I was working with some of the most professional people alive. These people who cut like records we all grew up listening to. Mm-hmm. They obviously knew what they were doing. I didn't feel like I did, but I knew something was wrong. Like I knew I was getting neglected and I knew that I was I was not It's just it's almost like being in finding a good producer. It's like it's like dating. It's like being in a relationship, you know, you know, when someone wants to be with you, they make time for you, you know, when they're excited about you and you know, when you're a priority and I knew they were excited, but it was like, they went out of town to New York or LA or Nashville or whatever. And it was like, their heads got turned and they forgot about me for a while and the project stalled out. And so eventually I made the really tough decision to walk away from working with like the best of the best. And I took the risk and I went back to my friend Dave and I said, you know, let's do this whole album above your pizza parlor, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in your apartment with your main coon. And that's how we made that album, my first album. And it did so well. People loved that album and it was all over the radio and I was selling out shows and touring and that album changed my life. And, um, all I knew was that it felt right doing it from the heart with someone who was really excited and it yeah. didn't feel right doing it in the best studio with the best producers in the world. And I've been, I've, I've kept that um, lesson at the forefront of my plans ever since. I've mm-hmm. remembered very distinctly, you know, how it can go wrong even with the best people. And I learned um, a lot of new lessons in, in Nashville and Music Row um, in that vein. That's amazing. I mean, obviously, that says that you have good instincts, you know. Um, and I, you know, I can relate. I, we, I, I played in a band um, for well over a decade. We toured nationally. We did a bunch of records, and um, you know, we worked with produ- We worked with a producer who. Um, you know, was kind of phoning it in, basically just saying like, you know, a bit uh, between every take, you know, everybody tune up 
and watch your tempo. And that was about it. And then he would disappear for days because he was arranging getting married. And we were sort of like, wow, we're, we're not really his priority right now, you know? Um, and then when we worked with Glenn Rosenstein and we worked, worked with other producers who were absolutely in it with us, but, you know, have that ability that a great producer has to be your therapist, be your cheerleader, be the person who can get you to play at a level that's far above your head at that point, you know, to sort of bring you up um, and elevate you. And, uh, and that's an amazing experience. And um, I want to ask real quick, what is the name of that, of that first album? So, so people who are listening can go listen to it right when we're done. Sure. It's called uh, Love and Fury. And it's a, it's a departure from what I'm doing now, for sure. It's from a 21-year-old who's very feisty and, um, you know, i just gotten out of a bad relationship and I was healing from being really ill. And so the tone is very different than what I'm making now, but I'm still so proud of those songs. So can, can I just sort of do a callback here and say, is that is that record, that first record, a reflection of what you were kind of describing earlier about how being ill changed your life and changed the course of your life. And that was reflected in the music that you wrote for that album. Absolutely. It was autobiographical. That's, that's awesome. Okay. So what happens next? You said you make this album. It's a huge success. You're selling out places. You're touring. Um, what, what was your next move after that? <laughs> I think well, by huge success, I should, I should note that that's all relative. It was a huge success for, yeah, you know, for an independent artist, it was like, it was on the charts. It was on the iTunes charts. Um, a lot of the pop songs were like, they were most requested on the Z97.1 radio station, which was like Massachusetts to New York. So it was like regional, you know, it wasn't like national blown up success, but I was so proud and so excited. And I just had such a good time with it. Those are some of the best days of my life for sure. Um, and then it gets crazy. It gets real convoluted, my industry story. And I don't even know how much of it I can share because I have not, I have not spoken at length about everything that's happened. I have like hinted at some things that have happened, but it got so convoluted when Nashville got involved and so twisty and there was so much there was so much happening behind the scenes. Um, All right. Well, if I can do my best to tease out of you as much detail <laughs> as possible, it's just it's just the two of us talking here. No one's <laughs> no, no one's, one's ever going to listen to this. Nope. No one's ever going to hear it. <laughs> nope. Um, it's it's a, um, just an intimate conversation between two people. Let me think about how I can put it so vaguely that I don't get myself in trouble. Um, oh my goodness. Okay, so I was discovered by big people in Nashville who brought me down to develop and manage. And I was offered a substantial publishing deal. And I was being developed for, you know, an artist deal. Um, and it just, it was so wrong on every level. Like when I say every level, I mean that gut feeling that I got in my body with, you know, the first time around where I'm like, this doesn't feel good. This isn't right. 
there, there are just like red flags everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And the problem is that once again, these people are the biggest in the world. They are working mm-hmm. with the world's biggest artists. They have a resume that just, it's like disgusting how powerful their resumes are, their Rolodex, mm-hmm. the gold records on the wall. And it just, it just wasn't clicking. It wasn't right. I had a bad feeling in my stomach. I was so stressed out. I wasn't sleeping. I was just nauseous all the time. There was so much happening for years and I wasn't putting out any music. I wasn't putting out anything. I wasn't allowed to. I'm already, I'm already mad. (laughs) I wasn't allowed to do any of the things that I had been doing. I was in an incredibly toxic, difficult cycle and, um, it, it almost broke me. It almost, it almost broke me, which I consider myself extremely resilient. There was a long stretch where I looked at my guitar and I felt sick. I, I was asked for entire catalogs of my music from, I mean, from middle school I was asked for, I was told like, you know, the deal that, the deal that was on the table was that they would own everything I had ever written and they could take my computers and all of my notebooks. Oh my God. They could go to my parents' house in Ticonderoga and they could take the notebooks under my bed. It was so, so obscenely like scary to me what was on the table. (laughs) And money was involved. There was a lot of money on the table as well. Um, I was offered, uh, I was, it was very lucrative, um, but I walked Mm -hmm. and that was a really hard decision. And I went through just a lot, just so much. Um, I think, I think ultimately I just had a different vision. I just had a different vision and a different feeling for my life than what was happening. And people were embedding themselves in my lives in a way that they shouldn't it be they were telling my parents to sell their house and move down here um and and i'm and i'm saying this as like these people weren't like joe schmoes they weren't they weren't like just you know crazy people in nashville i mean we're talking about people who are managing and representing and working with the biggest people in the world it's like with just absolute sterling reputations and it just it felt wrong it was wrong. Um, what happened was very psychologically damaging. And there was, there's so much that I, I'm trying to dance around um, the most difficult parts of the conversation without saying too much, because obviously these people have incredible amounts of money and resources and lawyers to destroy, you know, destroy people. Why does it feel like we're we're talking about you get, going clear from Scientology right now? That's almost yeah, what that's almost what it feels like. It's crazy. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. That's what it's like. Anyway, these people had heard a lot of my songs, and then you know I just severed ties with them, and I was like, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make an album myself. I'm gonna do it again by myself. And so mm-hmm. I started recording with my friend Kenny in his basement, and that's how we made Shades of Blue. It was totally organic 
and so beautiful and so much fun. And we made it with our friends and we called in musicians and we called in favors and we did it for, we did it for like Taylor Swift's shoe budget for one day. We just did it for nothing. And it was, again, it was just a beautiful experience and it was the songs that I wanted to sing. And it, it was the things that I needed to say. I was told, I will say a few things that I was told. Okay. Um, I, I can't wait to hear. I was too intelligent by someone on music row i will not say who mm. i was told that in order to do this i needed to dumb it down and i also needed to co-write because they did not let women sing their own songs anymore Ugh. they said the last woman who wrote her own music alone and didn't co-write was jewel and they said it's just unheard of for a woman to write every song on her record alone what year was this? <laughs> this was like two what? years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know it was. I'm, I, uh, but God damn it. Mm -hmm. That's ugh, it's horrible. So it was, it was things like that that just nauseated me, especially since these songs are coming from, you know, these songs are true stories about my life. I'm not, I'm not a machine that's writing these artificial stories. These songs are my heart and soul and mm -hmm. blood and sweat and sinew. And so it was um, offensive. It deeply offended me to come here and to start working with professionals and be told these sexist, horribly controlling um, narratives. I was not going to be a part of it. I would rather be poor for the rest of my life and own my own music than to be told what to do, what to sound like, how to dress, and what my life was going to be like. Yeah. And so I walked away from everything and I did it myself in a basement with my friend Kenny and I had a great time and I loved it. And I am so, so proud of that album. It's exactly what I wanted to say. And it was what they weren't going to let me say. They were not excited about the folk songs. They were not excited about my commentary on the political, you know, <laughs> the political experience in America. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to know what I was thinking or feeling. They wanted me to be part of the echo chamber, be part of the machine, be part of the algorithmic beige that I think is ruining music. I, and like I said before, um, it just was, it, and I hate to be on a high horse about this because I, I have a lot of friends who are writers and who are staff writers and I'm proud of them. And I think that's the right decision for other people, but it wasn't for me. And mm -hmm. I, I don't want to look down my nose at like, you know, writing hits for a living because I think that's, that's a good, honest thing to do. It just was not for me. It was mm -hmm. not honest for me. It was a huge lie. So I couldn't do it. I was getting physically sick and just so disconnected from my body and from myself and from my soul. And so um, while I was making the record, my fiance and I were watching television and a Super Bowl commercial came on and they had taken one of my hooks oh. and they had given it to uh, a huge star. And 
I heard my lyrics on the Super Bowl and I was not paid for that. And then not much long after that, um, I had been playing out, you know, I'd been playing out for a long time in Nashville and writer's rounds because that's what these people expected me to do. And a friend of mine, Holly said, you know, you need to stop playing out in Nashville. You're going to get your song stolen. And she's like, don't pitch them anymore. Don't don't be giving these people who are asking for your songs. Don't send them emails with them. I don't care who they are. She said, you're going to get some hooks stolen and you're going to get some lyrics stolen. You're going to get some entire songs lifted. And that was before the Super Bowl thing. That happened and I was like, oh gosh, okay. I'm not going to play out anymore. Um, it wasn't much long after that. I had written this song called That Girl is a Rainbow. Um, I wrote it alone. Great song. Thank you so much. I wrote it alone. Um, I copy. I had it copywritten. I sent it into the Library of Congress. I have the original iPhone recordings of me stumbling over it, trying to work out the chord progressions, trying to work out the lyrics. Um, I have all of that saved. And that was also stolen from a professional songwriter in Nashville who performs it out and says that he wrote it. He changed. He, he lifted the hook. Um, and I'm not going to say his name, although I could easily yeah. Google it and you could hear the song. He lifted the entire hook. That girl is a rainbow and that boy is colorblind. And he sings it out in Nashville at professional events. And he is signed to a major publishing company and he teaches songwriting. And he says he wrote that. And the thing is, I used to play at a bar in Midtown called the Blue Bar. And he used to sit there in the back row in a top hat and listen. I know he heard me singing that song mm-hmm. and he stole it. I'm desperate to know this person's name and make him infamous. The son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> see, I don't want to get anyone in trouble. Yeah. I don't, you know, oh, it sounds so mafia. So it sounds clear. like, yeah. It's so clear who wrote the song. All yeah. you have to do is listen to my version and listen to his. And it's it's so clear who the thief is, you know, but that is sort of that is sort of the thing that um, I think as a person who's so spiritually connected to music, just it kind of like ate my heart out. It just mm-hmm. kind of like the the machine of Nashville and the machinery of what this business can be is so um filthy it's Mm -hmm. hard it's hard and so i think the only way i figured out how to survive it is to maintain complete control over my art yeah sign away my publishing and not let anyone tell me what to do and that's fucking awesome i can (laughs) keep that up i hope i can do that for the rest of my life you know um at some point there are concessions that a lot of people in this town have to make to pay the bills and I understand that and I don't I don't judge anyone for their personal choices as long as they're not being thieves mm-hmm. or taking advantage we're talking to you top hat <laughs> jerk I hope your ears are burning <laughs> um, Mr. you know top as, long, hat. as long as people are making as long as people are being honest about it and they're not taking advantage of anyone like do it go for it for me it's just been like the nashville chapter has been like one of great realizations and 
like going even deeper inward, like <laughs> retreating even more and realizing, um, putting my foot down even harder, like, oh, you don't like my folk music? I'm going to make it even folkier. You think mm -hmm. my vocabulary is too big? I'm going to quote Rilke on the next record. Oh, you don't like mandolin? I'm going to add sitar. And yeah. I think that's just, <laughs> that's just the way that I have chosen to handle things. Yeah. Whether or not that's been a smart choice remains to be seen. But at the end of the day, I can sleep well at night. Yeah. I can do anything that I'm not proud of. I wrote all these songs. I'm so proud of my art. I made records that I believed in. They're from my true life experiences. And, you know, I never was in this for the fame or to live in a like giant mansion or fly private that was never the agenda. So why would I sacrifice the most important part of music for me, which was the authenticity and the story and the raw soul of what I do? Well, I, I mean, uh, I don't even know where to start. First of all, you're like, <laughs> you're my new hero. Number one, um, you are, you are a great songwriter. I mean, that is indisputable that you are an, an exceptional songwriter. And I knew that from the first couple of bars of the first song I heard of yours, I was instantly enthralled. Um, yeah. And yeah, uh, seriously. And I, again, I'm not, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna tell people listening to this podcast, you have to go and listen to Ashley Sophia's music, you know, Go to Spotify. Go well. We'll talk about it at the end. You can tell everyone where to go. But man, you 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 are a hell of a songwriter, and and really up there with some of the finest I've heard. You know, I, I was just absolutely blown away. And you know, kudos to you for your courage and your commitment to your art. You know, and again, you know how I was saying uh, that. Well, there are that over the past course of these episodes, there have been these themes emerging, and 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 one thing that seems to be true is the people who stay pure to their art are not only the ones that tend to tend to to succeed and i don't necessarily mean become rich and famous and whatever but in life they're happier they're more fulfilled you know their creativity is not being strangled by some some manager or some you know and i just it got me thinking i had when aaron comas from the spin doctors was my guest last week and he was saying that they, when they got signed and they were making their first record the label was like, you need to do this, you need to do that. And then, yeah. and, and then they, they, they stuck to their guns. They made the record that they wanted to make. They went on tour and the label didn't support it. Um, and they, the label actually said, Aaron told, Aaron told me they had a meeting and the label said, you guys just don't have an image. You need to get tattoos. <laughs> you need to forever alter your body. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? Yes. I, can I know. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know you can yeah. uh, in, a, in a very, very real way. Um, but God damn it, it! That whole side of the business, and it's not yeah. just in Nashville, as I'm sure no, you know. It's, it's in LA and it's in New York. I want to put a bullseye on Nashville because it's it's the industry in general. It really is. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 a it's it's the strangest thing that you have these two just. They, they couldn't be more uh, more far apart in terms of on one side you have people who are creative 
uh, and imaginative and they make art, whatever that is. And then on the other side, you have these people who are just all about the money and all about control and all about managing all you. Yes. They're banks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, that, you know, I mean, talk about the, you know, you, you make, you get a deal and, and, and essentially you're just depending on the budget and what they give you, you, you're just automatically in the hole, you know, and you're working to dig yourself out of the hole. Someone on Music Row once told me, and this was like, um, it was such a beautiful compliment, but such a stark moment for me of, of realizing what sort of, what level of shit I was in, was he said, um, and this was another just enormous producer, he said, he listened to almost every song I'd ever written. He sat for two hours scratching his chin, and at the end of it, he looked at me and he leaned back and he said, you know, you're like a female Bob Dylan. I just don't know how to put you in a box. Oh. And I'm grateful for that meeting and that experience because in some ways it was liberating. It was like the box got squished. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not going in a box. Mm -hmm. I have no business being in a box. I have no interest in a box. And even I will not. the box maker doesn't want to put me in the box because he appreciates what I do. And I was... I was grateful for that moment, as weird as it was, as strange and painful and, you know, bizarre as it was that I've always made the metaphor um, about Nashville is it's like, it's like the Wizard of Oz, you know, you're walking mm. down the yellow brick road and you see the man behind the curtain and it's not, it's not what you thought it was you see how the sausage is being made you see mm. you know how these songs are being written you see the behind the scenes and it's it's not what you thought and you realize you know you realize at the end of your journey that the power was within you the whole time and I think you know I think that's just the way I was meant to make art was to mm. tell the truth and to sing um, what I felt like singing and to remain unmuzzled and I don't I don't even really think that I've spoken about anything that wild in my music mm. you know but I was raised on stuff from a totally different generation I grew up on mm. you know 70s folk rock 60s folk and mm. that's the music that I love and I, I think that was music at its absolute purest and that's mm. what I'm trying to make now and if you know, if five people hear it and resonate with it, great. If it's 500, amazing. 5,000, thank God. And that's, I guess that's my philosophy. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I, I have to just backtrack for a second because you put, you put two words together, uh, which you are a wordsmith and I, I salute you for it. And because um, I was an English major and I went on to get a PhD in history, which is kind of like- Amazing. I, I, yeah, well, I know. I'm like, wow. But, uh, you know, like, I don't know how many drummers are out there that have PhDs, you know, could be for all I know, like most of them do. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, words and language are huge for me. I love the English language. I love to use it. And it just brings me joy, you know. Um, and uh, so the two things I need to say, one is you use the word addictive and that just made my heart swell. Um, because I've got, I hear addicting all the time and I'm like, you know, 
the the sort of word police in me I get cringy when I hear the word addicting. And so I was really glad to hear you say, <laughs> I was really glad to hear you say addictive. Um, but no, the other is, this is, these are the words that you strung together and they're amazing. You said algorithmic beige. Mm. And wow, did, I was like, oh, that is, that is perfect. That yeah. perfectly describes that sound. Yeah. You know, I may have heard that or read that somewhere. I don't want to take credit for that prematurely because I try I try to, you know, connect with other artists or read other artists that feel similar to me. And I am not a hundred percent sure I can take credit for that thought. I don't know if I heard it somewhere else. Mm. But thank you for saying I'm a wordsmith. I'm very flattered. Oh, yes, you clearly are. Um <laughs> because you know when I uh, I, I do not like contemporary country music yeah. that's coming out of coming out of Nashville. It, it's very Except processed. For Price. Have you heard Margo Price? I have. And I and I don't I don't want to sort of blanket, you know, generalize and say it's all terrible. But right. a lot of the stuff that gets piped into radio and I've used the word algorithm. I've, I've, I've had conversations with other musicians and people about about contemporary country, the sort of contemporary crossover country that's been coming out of Nashville for a while now, yeah. as it, 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 in that it does feel like it's been being made with some sort of algorithm, you know, that there are just a certain kind of, um, yes, you know, you get the, um, you know, uh, denim jeans and the, the dog and the, you know, and the pickup truck and the six, the, you know, six pack of beer and it's, you know, summer day. And, um, there's a, there's just this sort of thing. It, it's, you know, like a word algorithm generator, like country music, hot words. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, yeah. And uh, and so anyway, I, I when the when you said uh, algorithmic beige, whether in fact you you have proprietary rights on that on those two <laughs> words, on that phrase or not, it's still awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah, I would say it's a really good way to describe a lot of the music that's being churned out. And you know, what I've seen is from from the inside. What I've discovered is here's the way it works. So. You know, a songwriter will get signed to a publishing company or a management company or a label. And the more songwriters that they have on a song, the more of the share of, if you look at a song like a pie, the more of a pie that that publisher will own. Mm -hmm. So if a songwriter owns half of a song and the publisher gets the other half, if they put three writers on a song, the publisher will end up owning more than any of the songwriters. Yeah. And so they can kind of dictate what songs are about. They can literally say, I want you to go to a cabin in Chattanooga and I want you to write a song about owls. You know, the three songwriters, the three hit writers, the three writers with publishing deals will go to Chattanooga and write, you know, but I don't know. They don't have to go to Chattanooga. They can just write in Nashville or whatever. And maybe they'll, maybe they're writing about whatever they want. But, um, there are certain things that are pushed and expected and, you know, certain songs just feed, feed the algorithm, I guess, that yeah. I met, um, I met a gentleman once when I was, um, I think I was out at a bar celebrating a friend's birthday, something like that. And there was a bunch of music people there. Some I knew, some I didn't. And this gentleman, he was older. He um, asked what I did. I asked him what he did and he said, 
that he actually ran regressions um, to figure out band names. Um, and it was before a band had even written a song uh, together, before they'd ever practiced, before they'd ever met. He had like this regression that he was working out to figure out which musicians went best together and which names would sell the most music. And I wow. just thought that was like so, it was so Seussian or like Kafka-esque. It was just like, <laughs> it seems so backwards to me that you would be worried about a band name before you knew these people could even have any chemistry whatsoever. I mean, it just takes such tremendous chemistry for a band to become the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, yeah. the Who. Um, and to have like the incredible ego to believe that you could take a computer and sort of bypass the organic process of the magic of music uh, yeah. was another nauseating moment for me where I was like, what in the is going on? <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I don't know what they call those things. They were kind of hot a couple of years ago where it would be this big graph of words or, or themes and the big words were the ones that were the most popular and the ones that were used the most. I forgot what they call those those charts, but yeah. uh, you know what I mean? Like you'd yeah. see the visualizing, you know, um, and, um, you know, it, it's if you did one for modern contemporary modern for contemporary country, you know, it would just be like boots, whiskey, you know, um, lake, you know, that this sundress. sundress, you know, um, you know, Daisy Duke shorts. Yeah, I don't know. There's just this thing that you just hear these themes again and again and again. Yeah. Uh, girlfriend gone, you know, <laughs> lost, lost the farm, um, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I know for a fact that there was a time when people were writing songs like that that were genuine, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in the early days of country. And, um, and then I think people just kind of made a formula out of it and packaged it and made it slick and made it so that it could get, it could cross over into, into pop. Yeah. You know, and I, I think you made a good point earlier about how, how you've seen like, you know, artists that, that last through the test of time or stand them through the test of time, they end up being the people who stick to their guns. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, I think sometimes it can just be a slow, long road. And I think you need to know yourself really well. I mean, it, it depends on really what you want. But if you want to be a John Prime, like you have to be prepared to maybe spend seven decades in obscurity. Yeah. And like yeah. reach fame, you know, either at the end of your life or um, after you're gone. And I don't I don't think everyone wants that. I mean, I would say most most artists don't yeah. want that. Yeah. Um, but I think I think most artists, true artists, just want to pay the bills. I think they just want to find yeah. a way to make enough money to just keep going, just to keep yeah. doing it. They don't really necessarily want to be wealthy or take over the world or be photographed. Um, they just want to make beautiful art. And you know, I think it, it's all about what you're willing. To do to do that and I think sometimes ha living a balanced life 
you know, having, you know, one of my friends in Nashville, she has a, she has a day job. She um, works in advertising and she does really well with it. And she's also a beautiful songwriter. Um, And she always says like, I love my day job and I love having a day job because it means that I get to make the art that I want to make and no one's going to boss me around. So she's Mm. a huge proponent of, you know, finding a way to, um, to not fall into like coming to Nashville, signing a publishing deal, having your um, publishing taken away from you and sharing your royalties with um, a publisher, a manager, a label, whatever. Well put. I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, so I want to ask, as we sort of get to the end here, I want to ask, um, I want to give you the opportunity to, to, to do, some, do some plugs and, and, and really let people know uh, you know your socials and 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 where they can listen to your music and 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 uh, if you're if you're uh, you know live music is back if you have shows coming up I don't know if you're doing you're back to do, doing gigs now and and so so go ahead um uh, floor is yours sure so I have two albums out I've got an album called Love and Fury and Shades of Blue Shades of Blue is the most recent album it came out in 2019 before shit hit the fan yeah and I'm most proud of that album but i think there are some beautiful pieces to love and fury as well some definite old discovered undiscovered gems there i am doing a ton of writing right now i'm really proud of the work that i'm making i had tentative plans to go back into the studio um for this fall but with delta um you know unfolding this new variant it it just seems maybe kind of touch and go wait and see i feel like things are from what i gather they're gonna get a little worse in september and october so i may not be going into the studio but Mm. um i'm also not playing out right now um i after i got covid i told like everyone i know i will never catch covid again um yeah i just I just actually got my second vaccine like two weeks ago. So I am just like barely mm. inoculated. Okay. Which I'm so glad to be inoculated. Um, yeah. The reason I waited so long is because I have allergies. Yeah. Um, and I was really nervous about it, but it was totally fine for anyone listening. Don't be. I know. Get the damn vaccine. Get Don't. Va- if I can handle it with all of my anaphylaxis and histories of allergies, you can do it. And. Like I said, it was a million times easier than COVID. Um, so get the vaccine and then we can get back to live music and I can get back to doing what I love and playing out and hopefully meeting you in person and just shaking hands again and, yeah. you know, being human beings. I know, for God's sake, don't, America, <laughs> don't, don't drive us down into the nightmare again. <laughs> Get the vaccine. <laughs> Tell people to get it. Yes. Yeah. Ugh. It's insane. All I had was I had a sore arm the first time and I was like, I felt drunk. <laughs> and then the second time um, I had a sore arm and oh, body aches. I had a lot mm. of body aches the second time, but it only lasted a day and then I was good. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Just- I. Same for me. I didn't have really have anything. I, I had a fever that I didn't know about. And the only reason that I learned I had a slight fever was I went to go get um, molds for, for in-ears. Um, 
for, you know, for touring to have in-ear monitors. And okay. um, so I went to the audiologist to get, um, I got a, a pair of ultimate ears, which are amazing, by the way, this is not a paid promotion. I just, uh, <laughs> they are, ultimate ears are great, great isolation. They sound really clear and awesome. Um, but um, yeah, so I went to go get the fitting and I filled out all the paperwork and, and the audiologist came out and she had one of those, you know, laser uh, yeah, thermometers in her hand. And she was like, I just need to take your temperature, COVID protocols. I'm like, sure, no big deal. I had, you know, and she zapped me in the head with it. And, and then she was like, oh, you have a 99.5 fever. I can't let you in. And I was like, oh, God, I just drove an hour to get here. I was so excited oh, no. to get the. Yeah. And, and, and I got home and I checked my temperature and it was normal. And I was like, oh, but <laughs> so apparently I just ran a slight fever after the second shot. Um, right. And then I had to go back and get them a couple days later. But uh, but yeah, that was it for me. You know, maybe maybe I felt like a little tired, but that, you know, but seriously, if, if, if getting the vaccine, it means you get tired for a day or something. And then you just you have like almost a zero percent chance of being hospitalized or dying from covid. And let me it's, just say, like when I had covid, I this was how I explained it. I felt like my lungs were bleeding and like they were uh, made out of lead sinkers. Oh, and that man. lasted for probably six months. So get the vaccine. Yeah. Get the yeah. bloody. <laughs> I'm just watching. I mean, I'm watching with some horror seeing these spikes in, in, in places where people are just refusing to get it and refusing to wear masks. And it's like, oh, you know, this is this is this is the inevitable result of that. Yeah, it's really hard. And I know I know some of the hesitancy is just people who are scared people who people who don't like shots or people who have sensitive immune systems or people who have autoimmune disease who are worrying about flaring. But I just I have the utmost patience so for people. Yeah, I have the utmost patience for people who have genuine reasons to yeah. to be hesitant. And there's it's some the people, people who have no. It's reason. the people who are basically their whole point in not getting the vaccine is to just give a double middle finger to to science and to people who who, you know, believe in science, you know, that's a whole different story. That is also a reality happening right now. It really yeah. is. Yeah, 100%. I hope, I hope they learn before it's too late. And I hope that we can turn things around and not see it a, an alarming surge. But when you me ask too. me to plug my Spotify, I also just had to do a little plug. Oh, please do. Me. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's let's veer wildly away from, from COVID talk and get back to you and your music. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm on all the social media. Um, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I guess I'm not on all of them because like, I don't know, there's some, there's some stuff the kids are up to these days that I don't right. not really up on, but I know, I'm on the yeah. old school social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, that sort of thing. I try to post regularly. And um, if you want to chat, send me a message. I love hearing from new people and meeting new people. And I try to answer every message that I get. So I would love, love to hear from you. That's great. And so, you, I mean, are you, uh, I know you're Ashley Sophia, well, you're Ashley Sophia music, and then you might have another Instagram handle or um, is it just the Ashley Sophia music Ashley on Sophia music. Okay. Mm -hmm. And is that across the board? You'll find, I'll find you there on Twitter and Facebook at Ashley Sophia music. I think, I think, or they will Ashley. people listening. At, at Ashley underscore Sophia is my handle. Oh, and also Sophia is spelled S-O-F-I-A. 
Yes, right. Yeah, S-O-F-I-A. Yeah, so Ashley Sophia Music on Instagram. Um, I think my Facebook page is just Ashley Sophia. And then Twitter is Ashley underscore Sophia. And then go to Spotify, look, you know, look up her music there, go to iTunes, buy her albums, you know, support her and her her dangerous mission to to make <laughs> independent music and uh, and to never <laughs> and to never ever get put into a box. I salute you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you yeah. so much, Ashley. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, Ted, for having yeah. me. I appreciate this. And I also appreciate your wood paneling behind you. This, yeah, yeah. This is so 70s and I love it. Yeah, it's, it is a, it, you know, I have a house that was built in 1910 and it's been through various iterations uh, over the decades. And I moved in and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, ha- I'm just going to go with this until the day when I, I have I have a, du- a double electric stove and a gas stove in the kitchen. You know, my my bathroom when I moved in was was a beautiful shade of purple, purple t- purple tile, purple toilet, purple bathtub. You know, oh from God, from when that. somebody remodeled it in 1967. Um, yeah, and so this is the wood paneling is my vibe. It's my nook. It's very 70s, and I'm it's I'm glad you approve. Perfect. Approved. It's perfect. Did you change the purple bathroom? Some of it. Okay. White white toilet now. Um, and, uh, it, you know, sort of continual DIY projects going on in this house yeah. all the time. So I understand. I, yeah, I have a deep love for old things and keeping things original, but I understand sometimes you just gotta, you gotta add a little modern twist in with the, the old things. So you've got the wooden panels, but upstairs you, you've got a new toilet. And I yeah. That. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I have two daughters. So I'm, you know, I'm a single guy, and I have two daughters, and they come over, and and really the house looks like whatever they want it to look like most of the time. I bet they love that. Yeah. I bet they honestly love that flexibility. Yeah. Oh, it so fosters creativity for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm I'm that dad. I'm the one who's like, listen, if you want to be whatever you want to do, you should do that. Don't let people don't let people stomp all over your creativity or no your dreams. Boxes. No boxes. Fuck the boxes. Fuck the boxes. <laughs> I might put that on a t-shirt. I haven't done merchandise for the show yet, but honestly, fuck the boxes is a pretty awesome t-shirt idea. <laughs> and I'll tell you. I I'll, actually I'll, love that. I yeah. five. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll let you know. And uh, <laughs> this will be our new, po- our, new, um, our new partnership. Really brilliant merchandise. Algorithmic beige. Algorithmic beige and fuck the, fuck boxes. the boxes. Oh, beautiful. So good. I know. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you again. It's been really awesome talking with you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I it's, appreciate it. Yeah. It's great to get to know you. I can't wait to hear more of your music. And uh, hopefully I'll meet you someday when I come down to Nashville. Absolutely. I know our paths will cross. I have that feeling too. Yeah. You take care. Yeah. You too. Bye-bye. That girl is a rainbow. This episode was produced and edited by yours truly. Big thank you to Ashley Sophia for her time and also for this amazing music that began and ends the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you next week. That girl is a rainbow. And that boy is colorblind.
boy's colorblind But one day that old rain is gonna clear And she's gonna shine her way right out of here And he'll be in some bar crying into some craft beer Saying, man, I wish that rainbow was here And Roy G. Bill knows how to love and how to give But she never Yeah.